Hello, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. My name is AJ Hannenberg. I am joined by two of my good friends, Thomas Fletcher Magby. Hi. And Graham Geraldina Donaldson. How'd you know my middle name? <laughs> Just took a wild guess. Oh, my word. Yeah. And we are here to tell you about the classical world, classical literature, old paintings once, and maybe again, and sometime architecture, but mostly old books and old things. Have and we ever done architecture? History. We haven't done architecture. No, at all. probably not. Have um, we ever talked about buildings before? Come on, probably. We talked about buildings. Like Parthenon? Sure. Yeah. Anyway, that, that will come eventually when, once we decide to learn a little bit about <laughs> architecture. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And uh, today we are talking about a famous gardener, uh, uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah. his, his anxieties, and <laughs> also <laughs> for those of off. you who are listening to, to this podcast because you can't read, mm-hmm. uh, it'll be how to read. Uh, yes, so, the, you know, this is a big one for you. You yeah, can switch one. mediums, mm-hmm. right? It'll open up a whole new world Congratulations. for you. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Good job, loyal listener. Yeah, today we are talking about Harold Bloom. We're talking about Harold Bloom. The uh, gardener. Harold Bloom, the gardener. It wouldn't surprise me if he gardened. That seems like a very him thing. Uh, so we are talking about Harold Bloom, I guess, for a few reasons. One is we are a classical podcast, so it makes sense to talk about a, a mm-hmm. is classicist the right word. And that's probably not the right word. Literary critic is probably more apt. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Literary critic. Yeah. Famous person who has commented on, defended, uh, been a fan of the Western canon. So it makes sense to talk about him here. We were saying before, he's like the last, or was the last. Yeah. Yeah. The last uh, 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 sort of old school atheist classical educator. Like someone who is is in the academy. Was at Yale? Uh, Yes. Um, Who was a defender of the Western canon through the whole... 60s and 70s, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go movement. <laughs> that was what they chanted. Sure, but... Uh, but he really? was like... They actually chanted yes, Western was, Civ has got to yeah, go? Yeah, yeah. They were talking about the class, but right. it's ironic because, oh. you know, anyway. Um, but he was sort of the champion of Western canon throughout his time as an educator, um, but not coming from it at the... Coming from it at this new Christian classical school movement thing. Yeah, so exactly. So again, reason number one, why would, we, why would we talk about him is he lines up with a lot of the topics we cover on this podcast, so that makes sense. Reason two, Graham referenced this at the beginning of what he said. Harold Bloom died recently on October 14th at the age of 89. Uh, so mm-hmm. this is um, in some way, I, I guess- In memoriam. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a chance for us to yeah. revisit his ideas, talk about um, his influence as a part of this. And part three is I'm embarrassed that the first time Harold Bloom was referenced, I confused him with Alan Bloom, which is uh, uh, unfortunate. So this is me making it up. So sorry about that, Harold. Okay, so. Alan Bloom, is that the, the closing of the American yeah, mind? that's Alan Bloom. And then yeah. Harold Bloom is? 40 books. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah Western canon, uh, how to read and why, a uh, whole series of books on Shakespeare, all kinds of literature. Shakespeare criticism. invented the person. That's the phrase that uh-huh. I associate with him. Yeah, that. Th- I, really? Well, I feel like, I feel like God, God did yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> no, nope, yeah. it was Shakespeare. It was Shakespeare. It was, was it Shakespeare? I mean, that, that's like a lot of, somebody was taking a lot of swings before 1600, before Shakespeare Mm-hmm. took a crack at the person and finally got it right, you know? Yeah. It was a little like the light a bulb, like a lot of messed up light bulbs before you get the right one. Yeah, I guess that sounds about well, right. Well, think about Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is not or a like, person. Uh, or, or Beowulf. You can't bench press like a thousand oxen. Wait. Wait, but no, he can. Oh. oh but Shakespeare, okay, great. But Shakespeare can? I don't know. Okay. Okay, so um, I guess let's go at it. Uh, we'll do some just kind of basic information on the guy and then go into his ideas. We've already referenced that he uh, was a professor at uh, Yale, um, he taught for 
man, I, I want to say it was more than, I think it was 50 years that he taught uh, classes on literature. Dang. Um, so, and, and I wonder watch, if you ever phoned it in. So, well, just because you said that, uh, this is from a New Yorker piece that uh, talks about his teaching style. This is the article is titled The Prophet of Decline. So how's that for a title? This is from back in 2002. Uh, when Bloom teaches, he uncoils and grows even larger. He seems to his students not quite in control of himself. He gets carried away. He throws himself around. He slips his hand inside his shirt and grasps his chest. He quivers with feeling. He is a superb spectacle. He worships. He adores. He falls at a poet's feet, but not, uh, not different. I think it should say de- deferentially, not deferentially, not deferentially, but intimately. He is rabbinical prophetic, but he is also in his bigness and his emotion like a giant mother. He is disarmingly feminine. His voice emerging out of the roomy torso is a gentle tenor. It oh. goes on from there. Um, so in watching That's interviews crazy. with Harold Bloom, he will always tie back. Why is he writing these books? Why does he care about this stuff is primarily from his experience in the classroom. You so, know what? As you were reading that, I just realized I've never heard Harold Bloom talk. Mm. In my mind, he talks like Henry Kissinger. I don't know why. <laughs> it's not, um, uh, Harold Bloom sounds so in in watching interviews. He always sounds bored and like he'd rather be <laughs> literally anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it is shocking to, to read hear that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That his interview persona <clears throat> to be so different from his in class persona. I did. Uh, I did not find any videos of him teaching. I'm sure they're out there somewhere, loyal listener. If you want to send that over, but again, in looking at interviews, it's it's almost like he's disgusted with the interviewer, like for not essentially for asking shallow questions and not understanding his project. And most of the time disagreeing with his project. <laughs> um, so, but apparently was a very engaged and engaging teacher. So that, I guess that's a place to start with that. Where, where does Harold Bloom kind of develop this interest in, uh, in the Western canon in, in Western works? It's from, it's from teaching. It's from his, um, his time at Yale. Um, so he would eventually go on to, uh, uh, to publish literary criticism as well. Um, and this would then blossom into uh, 40 books that he eventually wrote. Uh, again, I've, uh, th- I read the Western Canon for, I know I referenced it on one of our episodes. I think it was in response to uh, Leo Tolstoy. What is art? I don't remember what the episode is named, but the Western Canon goes through 30 some odd um, great authors in the Western tradition and talks about their importance. Mm. Uh, so to Graham, Graham commented that, uh, Bloom says that Shakespeare invented the human man or the, the modern man or man, I guess I don't, he says crazy things, but Bloom also goes on to say that Shakespeare is the Western canon mm-hmm. that in some way, all great ideas find their fulfillment uh, or tra- or travel through Shakespeare's works. He's like the watershed, like everything yes. is flowing into that and then flowing out of that. Yes. But which is funny because I, I think, again, we being classical, we I think we would think of that as the Greeks, as the ones who most mm-hmm. of those great ideas flow through. Yeah, Homer and Plato. Mm-hmm. Right. But maybe it, maybe they're like the water source. Yeah, right? sure. They're the wells. They're the springs. And then he's the you know, that spinning wheel thing. Yeah. That, the, that goes through. I it's, think if I remember reading Bloom, it's that Shakespeare is he takes everything in from the classical world. Yes. And then everything out after him is a reflection of Shakespeare. So there, there, Influenced there's, by. there's something that, that happens to our concept of person that once, once everything classical sort of like went through the prism of Shakespeare, we, uh, you couldn't talk about or have a human character in a different way. You couldn't have a Dante anymore after yep. you had a Hamlet. Right. Um, but, and, and maybe more importantly, you couldn't go back to a Dante mm-hmm. after you've had a Hamlet, that kind of thing. 
I guess now that we're taking it this way, have you all read any Harold Bloom before? Just the Western Civilization. I've not. Okay. Or the Western Canon, sorry. You, did you read, um, like, for the Shakespeare part because you teach Shakespeare, or did you read the whole book? Are you uh, a better reader uh, than I am? It was back when I was in college. Okay. Um, so, again, I, 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 I wanted to read the Western Canon to read his Shakespeare section because Shakespeare is so impactful to him, and I never totally understood. Um, just... I've never had those like huge Shakespeare moments that he describes. Um, so that was more out of a curiosity for me in reading that. Um, but so let's, so in writing 40 works, much of it is literary criticism. Criticism almost feels like the wrong word yeah, because he is, it's in adoration of the Western canon that mm-hmm. he's doing most of his writing. Um, so like rumination rather than criticism. Yeah. I guess it's, again, he, he starts, it largely is defense of why the Western canon is the greatest ideas that have been passed down from generation to generation. Um, so it's not, again, when I hear criticism, I hear tearing down. I'm sure that's not the technical definition mm-hmm. of literary criticism. He's, I mean, he's like the secular apostle of the Western tradition. Yeah. And what I find sort of the most fascinating about his, his career is when he's come into conflict with what has risen in academia over the past 25 years, yes. which is the um, sort of modern looking back criticism saying, you know, that, you know, the, the, the silencing of old voices because they don't, they don't bend to modern fashion and sensibilities yes. and the, you know, Western Civ has got to go and... And old white dudes and on that kind of sentiment that's in that's in academia, especially in the humanities right now. I mean, it's well, now that he's gone and he's not at Yale, like who who, who takes that? his chair? Right. It's not going to be a young Harold Bloom. Right. It's going to be some milk toast, uh, uh, a person who can play the play the academic politics. Yeah. But I guess I, had, I again not thinking I hadn't thought this until you said it that way. It is somewhat helpful to realize <laughs> that these fights have been happening for a long time. Mm-hmm. These are not, we have not suddenly uh, grown to disdain the Western canon. There has been uh, nervousness or suspicion about it for, again, his entire working career, probably longer than that. Um, but let's, yeah, so let's follow that. So I've, but, I've had to defend the Western canon and why we teach it. Yeah, totally. And yeah. That, but he's been fighting a rear guard action and but he's been consistent and has been losing it while in academia while like that's in almost academia. the crazier part that he had and i'm sure tenure plays into this some way but that he was able to be in those institutions and defend the western canon and kept at it for 50 years sure but then let's say harold bloom harold bloom regenerates mm-hmm. and he, there's a young 20 there's a young 32 year old recently minted phd harold bloom mm-hmm. does he ever get a job at the yale humanities department nowadays Maybe. I, I, I think there's something. Um, just, I just mean this as an observation, not as a good or bad. When you when you survey political views of, of faculty members, it's over. I think I forget the ratio. I think it's somewhere around seven or eight to one um, left leaning versus right leaning. And so there, there might be some argument for to bring a diversity of opinions. Um, his conservative view toward the Western canon could mm-hmm. be valuable for that regard. He didn't consider himself a conservative, but in this specific way. So Yale, if you're looking for someone to fill a chair. I've got a, I got a resume. You can take. <laughs> <laughs> do you want that? Do you want that position? Yeah. You want, really? Would you want to do that? Uh, a chair at Yale? Yeah. Seriously? Uh, okay. <laughs> you'd be shouted down and fired in a week. Yeah. Think so? Not, you, and not because of any you, fault in you. you would have, I'm, so, you would have I'm se- so charming. You would have seven whole days. You think you would make it that long? <laughs> okay, good. Okay, so um, let's let's follow then with this. So Graham is helpfully pointing out, let, let's, we'll start tracing some of his main ideas. So 
Um, he, his most prominent work is uh, a book titled The Anxiety of Influence. Um, and so what are we doing now? We're going to talk about some of his ideas because Bloom cares about the classics, cares about the Western canon, which is something that the three of us care about also. But he, but there are lots of ideas of his that we probably won't see eye to eye on. Um, and some, this specifically um, will have like a Freudian influence. And I'm just curious, like what yeah. we think about this. So even Graham, to your point of like, you know, he's this ally and like fighting for what I'm, I'm overstating it to make a point, but just to say like, you know, he is this vociferous uh, uh, ally for defending the Western canon. But do we actually agree with like a lot of what he says or is there? Uh, I think when you, when you get below the surface, mm-hmm. no, we, yeah, we right. wouldn't. And that's, so I guess we'll talk about that a little bit. So um, anxiety of influence. So, um, the, I guess I'll, I'll just go for it and then I'll be curious what you think. So the way Bloom thinks about, so the, the canon uh, continues to exist. The canon has not like stopped because like modern, because we live in today, like at some point new works will be added to the canon. Um, and we won't know who should be added for some length of time, 50, a hundred years, pick your cutoff. Um, but, but new works will continue to be added. Well, there are many more people who are writing and who are producing literary works than can be added to the canon. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Bloom hypothesizes is that there is this anxiety. There is this view that all the great works have been written before this person who is writing today. So uh, Graham has recently been getting interested in writing poetry. Oh, um do you like that? I just publicly put yeah, that out there. I got to yeah. do it. See, I put you on the hook. That's mm-hmm. kind of what the goal of what I was going for was. Um, AJ also does. I think don't you do poetry also? No, I haven't like done poetry. AJ poetry. I haven't done poetry, poetry for a long time. AJ hates I, poetry. I, was, I don't hate all poetry. This is a. This hey, is I picked a up foul. Uh, Jack Gilbert. Is that the guy's name? I love Jack Gilbert. Yeah, I picked him. Uh, uh, his collected works is, are really really good. Did you hit any of the the Great Fires collection? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, we should talk about him another time. But yeah, um, anyway, he's great. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't write so much poetry. I am trying to cook up a book. Book. Apparently. There you go. Mm-hmm. But the, but okay. So let's take you all as auteurs. Um, so right, I know you like poetry. I just like trotting up the stereotype. Every now and then. This is wonderful. It creates conflict, which is I good. like playing the bad boy. It's fine. But do you? Uh, is there any feeling that you all have of you all are teachers? You all teach English. Mm-hmm. You all teach great works. And then in wanting to contribute great works to the world, do you ever have that moment of my work does not live up to? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good. Graham is just sitting there thinking. Um, No, because I think any idea of me being in any kind of literary conversation is so hilariously stupid to, to me like right. like it's, really? it's just so far gone that sure. it's like i should like i could just write my little poems mm-hmm. in my little farmhouse yep. and then die and have a mountain of poems mm-hmm. that no one ever reads and i would be fine with that yeah you know so it's not like i'm wanting to put these out there and like oh man i'm kind of hoping mm-hmm. that someone's gonna i don't know say hey why don't you go move go to paris for a month and finish your second book of poetry right like right. or some sort of dream situation right um it's just it's such a paris why <laughs> really you don't like paris so i i don't have that that anxiety because it's the idea of me even doing it sounds stupid yeah or the, sounds like the, like it's so far yeah, or that the you know the canon of poetry would go from you know t.s Eliot to graham donaldson like that feels like a <laughs> right even that, exactly. that that's your reaction there i get that but there is 
Yes. So I was going to say, my anxiety is less that I worry about it being adduced into the canon. Adduced, <laughs> is that the right word? Uh it being being adopted into the canon, I think go. my anxiety is that I I write it and I'm like this is trash because mm. yeah, it's, it's baby. It's that same it's that same thing that uh, Ira Glass talks about, right? Where mm-hmm. you get into a thing because you have taste, and yep. there's like a but two year a stretch where yep. your taste is way better than your actual work. Yes, and so you just lots of people give up in that area. Yeah, I think it's helpful to see that they're to acknowledge that gap and even to put a time limit on it to say because after two years. You might just be a bad writer, you know, like, not you. Yeah. I'm not talking about you, but like, or some people are just bad at podcasting. I, why am I using? Anyway, if you whatever. want to sponsor AJ's MFA, email us. Hey, there you go. Let's get after it. Um, but uh, so even in both of those examples, at some point you have to put your work out there into the world. And when people uh, are looking at, you know, let, let's say Graham, one day you, you publish a book of poetry and we walk into, I guess, Barnes and Noble, whatever. Will they still be in business? Whatever. You walk into whatever bookstore and there's Walt Whitman and then there's Graham Donaldson right next. Like at some point you have to put that out there and. W- yeah. I, if, if I ever did, it would be like angry poetry under a pseudonym. <laughs> oh, there, but I think the pseudonym part is, in, is interesting of almost wanting to distance yourself in your name from the work. Yeah, like, yeah. You want the work to be separate from you. Yeah. But at some point, anyway, all this is getting at the same point of there's this anxiety related to the greats come before you. And so um, for you to then contribute in any way to like written English or whatever language, pick your language works. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's this nervousness of, will I measure up? Will mm-hmm. I matter? Like, am I good enough for it? And his, the, the theory related here is that that's all poets, all authors, all everyone feels that pressure, feels mm-hmm. that pressure from the works that come before them. And so what, what authors, what creators, what um, what they have to do is find fault with the works that come before them. Um, this, I believe, I believe his terminology is that um, it is a misreading, is what he calls that, and so it requires a strong misreading of the works that come before you to find gaps, problems, fault with the works before you, and therefore find space for your work in reaction to whoever comes before you. To only look at the at the canon and say these are perfect works would lead to um, inaction. It would mm-hmm. lead to why write because all the good stuff is already written. All the good stuff is already written. Which uh, in some kind weird, of asked that question. In in, yeah. in some weird weird way, we probably uh, uh, reinforce that idea by coming in here and talking about old things. But again, the canon is alive. The canon will be added to. And again, we won't know when or who. It is impossible for us to know today what will be added to that canon, but some work written within plus or minus 10 years of us will 200 years from now be added to that canon. Is this why like Spider-Man Homecoming <laughs> was made? Because like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, were so, Spider-Man movies were so bad. But this is interesting. Um, is it like that kind of thing? Yeah, sure, sure. They're all reactions to each <clears throat> other. This is funny. I always think you hate comic book movies and then you reference them just offhandedly like this. Okay. Um, but there were problems with Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man. And so they needed Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man. Oh, I forgot about Andrew yeah, Garfield, Spider-Man. Oh my God. But then word. those were also had problems. So they needed, who's the new guy? Holland. Yeah. Uh, Tom Holland. Tom, Tom Holland. Holland. Yeah. So they needed Tom Holland, Spider-Man as a reaction to that. That's actually a great, <laughs> these are not classics, but these are, that's a great way of thinking about it of each one. Take that back. <laughs> I never will. <laughs> hey, can they, can they cover it for this? Be some pizza time related, uh, picture now that we've brought in P- that... pizza time. Oh, it's a meme related to the Spider-Man, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man it's movies? It's pizza time. I don't know. It's pizza time. Oh. I'll, I can. Thank you. I, I mean, I, hanging, we've never out. strayed from paintings Sorry. before, but okay. it seems like maybe it's time to switch to Spider-Man. You've been okay. hanging out with kids too long. <laughs> I, that literally is my job. Okay. So this is, this is what the, uh, his first idea of anxiety of influence is, is that great 
um, artists need to find before them the faults in uh, um, when he uses the word strong, he's actually, um, I don't know the, the specifics of this. He's actually using a psychoanalytic term there. Strong is in reference to the father figure before them. So a strong <laughs> misreading means to misread your father, misread your mother. Mm. So it's actually to find fault with your mother and father in this way. It's in the liter- literary tradition, but you find fault with them and then see how you can improve on the faults of um the uh, the works that come before you and then that's what allows artists to make great art is that they believe there was error before them in the canon even though to look at the canon overall we'd say these are useful good we should read them they find individual problems mm-hmm. with the ones before them hmm. um, those who don't find fault uh, are uh, do what is called a weak misreading and a weak misreading is basically just to accept what comes before you and say i'll just i'll do that and then those who weakly misread do not achieve greatness in bloom's um ideology that's probably me but maybe that's a a healthy place to be of anyway you're not trying to like topple like you're just you are accepting what comes before you and i don't know maybe there's uh, yeah you do not have uh uh plans of grandeur i don't know yes exactly Yeah, yeah okay so this is like his original uh, it's not his very first work. He has some literary criticism that comes before this, but this is like one of his first big, uh, big ideas, big books. Um, is there any reaction to, to this idea? Like, have you ever thought about this of like why great authors write or why they, well, I'm just trying to think like, what did Milton have? What did he, when he looked back at epics, what did he look back and say? Oh, that's not really right. But in a we- so in a weird way for Milton, he's looking back and saying that the old the Genesis one the, the yeah. Genesis accounts are insufficient to portray the beauty of what's happening. So that's a little that's a dangerous place, and yes, he recognizes that dangerous place because yeah. he asks the Holy Spirit, the Muse. Is he really? He he asks he instead of <coughs> instead of calling on the Muses, he calls on the third person of the Trinity to help him write his poetry. That's cool. And he basically says like, I don't want to screw this up. So I don't want to say anything blasphemous. So give me a hand because I'm, I'm trying to, what's the phrase? I'm trying to justify the ways of God to men, but you're right. He is going back and like, um, uh, filling fan fiction, fan fictioning the old Testament. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, yeah, he's in that sort of, yeah. In that weird position where he, it's almost it's pretty audacious to say like, well, the Bible, <laughs> Bible's okay, but Bible's okay, but <laughs> yeah, let me show you how it's really fill done. In the, fill in the blanks here. <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, give it some real drama yeah, for heaven's sake. <laughs> but you need that audacity to cr- then create a great work like Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. nowadays, I mean, we, since we have, or even not even just nowadays, in the past two hundred years, we have such more. We have you know people's journals and people's insights, and and we have the whole academic infrastructure around studying what people what the authors think about themselves and think about the world around them that we can really psychoanalyze uh uh you know someone in the 17th century and 18th century and put them and try to put say oh yeah they really they were really grouchy about (laughs) shakespeare so they went and they wrote their plays right but when you go back to Dante, we don't have you that. don't have, or you go back to Homer, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't mm-hmm. with with those with those ancient works. Um, so in many ways, they almost stand like these these ancient ruins mm-hmm. of a past civilization you never can can go to. Yeah. I don't know. So uh, it, 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 the question is like, did Dante write the Divine Comedy out of a sense of dissatisfaction over 
the epics that had come before him. Or did he read Aquinas and think, actually, I can portray this better? Yeah. Or, th- or this would be a more compelling way to, to teach on, on hell or purgatory or heaven. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't, we don't, I don't know. And that's, that, that, that's part of what I think the weakness of this theory is, is it's the same weakness with all um, Freudian psychoanalysis is that whenever an element of psychoanalysis is missing, you just say it's repressed and like they didn't know it, but it's there. It's like, well, that's not really how science works. That's a, that's a, that's a and that's smart. trick. Yeah, yeah. It's really smart, but it's also, it, it, it makes it bogus because it, psychoanalysis can't be disproven as a result of that. You're just upset, Thomas. Why am I? But I don't know that I'm upset. Yeah, it's actually yeah, because exactly. of how I was mistreated as a child, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I don't know that exactly. So that's what is frustrating <laughs> in the, in the theory. But it's interesting as an idea that I, I think he is getting at something that if everything before you is perfect, uh, taken a different way, um, one of you two has mentioned at some point being asked, you know, if we have the Bible, why write anything else? I don't remember which one of you it was, but this is some piece of that answer is that there are things. I've been asked that question by yeah, students. Yeah. Um, is that there are other stories to tell mm-hmm. or there's more information to be given. So. And that's kind of my issue with his notion is that it sort of assumes that everything worth covering in life has already been covered. And the only way to cover something new is to find fault in the things that have been written. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, can't there be gaps in other places other than like flaws in what has been written? Can't there be other gaps to fill Hmm. just simply because not everything has been written? Has been covered. Yeah. Right. So when the Iliad itself was written, sure, it covers a lot of life. Hmm. It doesn't much cover like true, honest love and marriage, right? Hmm. It's just not, I mean, we talk a little bit about Helen and Paris, right? Yeah, but it's not really there, right? <laughs> sure. there, there's got to be another story written for that. And we see some of that covered in the Odyssey, mm-hmm. right? So, but the Odyssey doesn't do a great job of covering heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. He just kind of pops in for a visit. And so then we have, you know, Dante's Divine Comedy, right? So sure. it's not necessarily that there were flaws. It's just that they were... Weren't really covered or... Didn't like cover outside. the entirety yeah. of life. Yeah, I get right? that. I agree with that. And also, so the human experience on a spiritual level hasn't changed we still have the same fears and anxieties that that uh, I think we fear Florentine, wolves probably less. But okay, no, no, but wolves. But we still have fears. So there's something to be said about why not write an epic about the state of the soul's journey to God, but having it be with also with talking about the modern trappings mm-hmm. of you know, like technology sure. and and uh, 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 there are literary treatments that can be done about the anxiety of the panopticon now that we live in a in a, in a world where we are you know our technology could be spying on us you know there's mm-hmm. just there you can you can keep telling the stories but by talking about it and the authentic experience that we're living today you are going to be doing something different than dante like um you know so the 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 circle of the lustful in hell what happens to them what are they doing? They're their... blown about in wind. Yeah. So instead of being blown about in wind, they could be like swiped right for eternity or something, <laughs> yeah, you true. know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Swiped into a, a yeah. fiery pit. Yeah. Like, like you <laughs> yeah. talk about, you know, like the, the, the commoditization of the person from dating apps mm-hmm. and you could do some sort of Dante mm-hmm. take, but you're not doing it because you think yeah. Dante's wrong. You're doing it because you're talking about. Dante couldn't talk about apps. You couldn't talk. Yeah. Right. So yeah, Bloom would take that to be a period piece. He, he, he includes anything that doesn't outlast its time period as a period piece. 
Uh, but mm. but when he looks at, at isn't everything a period piece? Then this is complicated. Uh, no. So how like, is Dante not then? That's what I'm saying because we still read Dante now. Yeah. That it, it uh, Dante would be a period piece in his you need language footnotes to know who the heck these Florentines are. Sure. But the message of Dante uh, I mean, is timeless. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, there, bo- there are a lot of timeless elements yeah. to Dante beyond like when when I read it with my students, I say they can just kind of not pay attention mm-hmm. to the Florentines, and right. that's fine. If yeah. we only wrote like if the central message was about phones, mm-hmm. well, eventually phones will disappear and it'll all be VR right. in inside our eyeballs, right? right? So people be like, well, "You held a thing to your ear? <laughs> like what are you talking and about?" And if that's and if the whole point of if the whole message of your reworked Inferno is phones are bad. What, the day when we don't have phones, yeah, no, the message won't last. It wouldn't be that. It's yeah. more that if we were reworking the Inferno, mm-hmm. we would be using metaphors of our time, yeah. and we would be using. But even think about if 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 our what we're doing if in reworking is modernizing it, we're saying the only problem with Dante is that it's seven hundred years old or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, that's that's high praise of a, of a work to say the only problem with it is that it's located in time, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's still, if we were to say the Iliad and the Odyssey are the perfect epics, uh, then why would we write any more? Like, what's the point of doing, uh, if, if, uh, if Pride and Prejudice is the greatest novel of all time and is, and is in fact a perfect novel, why would we write more novels? Why would we not just mm-hmm. read Pride and Prejudice? Because I don't want to read about Victorians chatting with each other all the time. But it's a great book. Come on, guys. In, I, I know. I, I love the book. Paragraphs. But, but this is my point: is that there's there are other things to write about. Yes, I want exactly. To, I would love to read about like a guy who drives demolition derby cars. Right. <laughs> sure. That sounds like a fun book. Sure. But that, uh, oh, uh, there's one way. Okay. Uh, the one way of taking it is to say reading great works can be exhausting, and so sometimes we need brain candy. So that would be one option, which I think is what you're saying about derby. Oh no! I, oh. In this case, you want Pride and Prejudice a, with derbies. It would be a uh, a high a work of high art. <laughs> Good. I would uh, love for you to write that work of high art. No, but uh, here's an example uh, yeah. of a work of not that it's not a work of high art, or I don't think many people would consider it a work of high art. But it's trying to play that. So AJ has on his bookshelf. I'm looking at uh, the comic book Watchmen, and Watchmen is in 24 parts. Mm-hmm. Or 12 parts. I can't remember. Whatever it's in 24 it parts or 12 parts. So it is clearly trying to be epic mm-hmm. because it's setting itself up in 24 parts mm-hmm. or 12 parts or whatever it is, right? And so it's it's using the form and it's telling – it has epic style. It has heroes. It has villains. It has these big, sort of, these big stories. And it's um, – will it be a classic in 100 years or will we completely ignore it anymore? Uh, will we completely ignore it? Um, I don't know, but when – who wrote it? What's his name? Um, the guy who wrote Watchmen, I can't remember. Alan is it, uh, Moore. Is it Alan, Alan Moore? Moore? Dave. So when Alan Moore sat down, he's like, okay, I'm going to do a comic book about the United States and the 80s and the fear about nuclear war and Vietnam yep. and all these sorts of things. He chose – and then what? what sort of – what am I going to, what's my vehicle for this going to be? Superhero mm. comics, which is sort of superheroes are the, you know, the sh- shiny patriotic uh, good guys. And then he, he turns it into this, well, uh, you know, this isn't a podcast about the Watchmen. But what I'm trying to say is like what he decided to do is, is to put it in the form of the epic. Mm-hmm. And was he doing it because he is real real grumpy he's mm-hmm. sort of ticked of how poorly um milton mm-hmm. did paradise lost i don't i don't think so i think he's just he's just taking the form and uh and you know 
trying to add the Watchmen to the... If you had a wall of epics, yeah. he's wanting to have the Watchmen be the next installation next yes. to, with everything. But yeah. I don't think it's bred out of a out of looking at the old ones and saying, like, mm, not quite. Yeah. And that's... Uh, it. It kind of makes it disappointing to read the canon. It, it no longer becomes a conversation. It becomes a one-upman game, which yeah. maybe it is. I mean, there are arrogant men and women who contribute to the canon. But it... Uh, this is not a reason for it to be true or not. I just don't like that as a, as the reason for these sure. books being written. Does that, I, I prefer the idea that we're all looking for some kind of good, true and beautiful thing. And this conversation gets us closer to it, but it's not because the guy before me, I hate the guy before me. So I like, despite him, I wrote my work. I just always figured the things that are in the canon are the things that sort of accidentally make it there Yes, because ever sure. because they actually t- made magic. Yeah they were authentically trying to say something true and it clicked and people, and then it stayed. Whereas someone who's like, I am going to write the epic of our time, writes write something that is right. dead in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So with <clears throat> CS Lewis talks about how, if you want to be original, you're going to end up saying something. If your, if your focus is on being original, you're yeah. going to end up saying something boring, but right. if you focus on truth, you'll end up saying something interesting. Right. And so maybe I don't need to, think about flaws in the old books at all, but simply focus on writing something true sure. and then that will be, but, or canon. focus on writing something ordinary. Yeah. And good. then you, and then at the end yeah. it turns out what's the, you all said, uh, uh, one of the, one of Shakespeare's plays was like written super quickly. Um, is it Hamlet that mm-hmm. I thought y'all talked about this. It was like written the quickest of all of his works and, um, he thought it wasn't very good. I thought y'all talked about that at some point. Maybe I made it up. Um, but there's something to, is even to take Shakespeare. He wrote, 38 plays 40 plays somewhere around there we don't read all of them very often yeah but and uh even bloom will say only 24 of them are classics which is hilarious to me that he has that number off the top of his head um but there's something too like uh the loyal work like the consistent work of putting out 40 plays not all of them are perfect um but it's almost the ordinariness of that Mm -hmm. process that like makes them great i don't know yeah they just get up go to work yeah and your work happens to be playwriting um, okay, so th- all this to say, I think there's an interesting idea here, um, and um, I- I'm not totally comfortable with it. I don't really like there being a psychoanalytic reason for all Western canon existing, but it's just interesting as an idea. Um, I've always felt like the artist or the author gets two options in life. He can be loved and wealthy in life, <laughs> but then forgotten, yeah. or he can have absolutely nothing in his life, but then he is famous forever. Yeah. You get to pick one. You, you'll get to be both. was both. Yeah, because he got... He got to be famous. And wealthy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So then everyone's so like was Shakespeare, Dick and Dickens. Shakespeare and Dickens, like every once in a while you can do it. But so was, was but Homer. Really? Yeah. We, how do we know that? How do we know that? Homer wasn't real, right? No. I, I, I'm joking, listener. Please don't send me an email. Uh, you're right. I, I got, I'm probably wrong on the Homer one because we don't really, but, but like, a just, lot of people didn't even know if he existed. But I was just listening to um, something about um, uh, The Great Gatsby and how that book was uh, essentially no one read it when it first came out, it came out to poor reviews. It was only, I think it was world war two. I think when it got shipped out hundreds of thousands of copies to soldiers, that's when it became famous. Um, Thoreau died thinking Walden was a failure. Uh, I'm sure we can find examples on both sides of this. Walden is wonderful. And I love it Sorry. What? because I'm a 
I, I spend too much time with high school students, isn't that? You want to go live in the woods and say you're living in the woods, but really you're just like going into town and buying food. No, there's a recipe in, in Walden for um, a, a, a bread that doesn't rise, and I made it. I, Unleavened bread? I mean, sure. Was it good? No, it was disgusting, no. but um, I still made it and was very proud of myself. Uh, anyway. I mean, issue is that he was like, oh, you guys are all like being held down by your possessions and your furniture and you can live free, but he's squatting on another guy's land. That's yeah, true. he was free. He just rejected the system, man. Okay, so we, We're that was... We all do that. Rip the system. We could all do that. We'd just be anarcho-primitivist. Okay, so uh, that's 1973 is when Anxiety of Influence comes out. Um, it, it's an important book in terms of Bloom's ideas and in like judging his 40 works. Uh, the, I mean, a, a next milestone for him is the Western Canon, um, the book that he wrote in 94. We've already talked about it a little bit. There are actually, I just saw the number on here, 26 uh, works that he considers. He organizes it by the authors of those works, um, but it's kind of his overview of, of those, um, of those authors. Um, I, I find this book very funny. There's a, uh, at the very back, there are four appendices that provide like a list of recommended works. And it's gotta be like 30 pages of works or like 30 pages with like just titles and authors names. And so, uh, there was some controversy over who he included on that list and his defense of his defense of the list was, I just came up with that off the top of my head, <laughs> like just off the top of his head. He came up with 30 pages of important works. That's insane to me. I guess it, we haven't really talked about the man himself. He is known for, was known, is known, whatever, for having um, an incredible memory, mm-hmm. uh, uh, memorizing poetry, memorizing works of literature. Uh, he often uh, bemoaned the loss of memorization of poetry, specifically uh, in in classroom contexts. So, I guess maybe we would appreciate him for that. Also, mm-hmm. that's the thing that we care about as well. Um, the, the, the juniors this week this week just did. I could hear them through the walls captain, while I was teaching. Oh, captain, my captain. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, uh, the Western canon is, I guess, somewhat infamous for him putting into words what Graham has referenced already at this point that, uh, Bloom thought that only greatness could be added to greatness and as a part of the canon. And so he rejects the idea of, uh, representation being an, uh, an attribute of what goes into the canon. Mm-hmm. It's only the quality of the work itself, regardless of, author story uh, uh, the story of the author i mean uh, regardless of any of those details um you can only judge the work itself for what goes into the canon so as far as harold bloom is concerned we're not going to go find a four more american writers to put in there because we're light on americans exactly yeah or or Or, women or or minority you know pick your category he would not not care about that yeah Yeah. which is what it was just something that he's had that he got you know, he's been yes, criticized for that. That would be a pushback in the academy, at least these days. Well, even uh, further than that, in reading uh, articles posted about him, um, New York Times um, did one that I thought was um, heartfelt. Like it clearly, Harold Bloom's death meant something to the author. Even in that, they can't help but point out that he w- did not appreciate uh, or, or did not care about diversity as uh, an aspect of the Western canon. Like that's a thing still included as he's dead. This is an important thing to know about him. Um, the New Yorker did the same. So it's just interesting to read the obituaries and see how yeah. he's remembered in their mind. Um, yeah, I and probably I should have started with this earlier too. While he did teach um, uh, his class at Yale, what he thought of as 
almost more important was not like success in this academic write peer-reviewed papers like that path to success he wanted to write popular books so that the average person would have access to this literature would have access to these ideas and that's why these 40 books that he's writing are not really the first few are for other professors and the rest are for all of us therefore i mean they're again the western canon is like a thousand pages so have have at it but it's not for an academic audience it's for an everyman all right, so that is the Western... Or what Harold Bloom thinks of every man Or what Harold Bloom wants every man to yeah. be. Um, there's a very funny interview of him um, talking about how uh, Harry Potter is a waste of time and how to read Harry Potter is to not read at all because um, it's like not even really a book. Um, he read... What's the first one? Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? Is that man. the first one? They got so Launderer long. of bathrobes, or Thank you. So, yeah, they got so long at the end. Like there's like you know two thousand pages, like Harry Potter and the End of Trees. Ah, oh, good, wonderful. That was my favorite of them. Um, he Harold Bloom read the first of the Harry Potter books and then wrote an op-ed, I think, for the Wall Street Journal, saying that it was an it was a complete waste of his time and he wishes he hadn't done it. Anyway, it's a very funny it's a very funny read that I think our listeners would appreciate. Okay, um, all that gets us to. Um, the book in front of me that I actually did read for this, How to Read and Why. So How to Read and Why is, mm, I think, largely a summary of the Western canon. Um, so in How to Read and Why... A summary of his book, the Western canon, or a summary sorry, of the you. Western canon? Of his book, the Western canon. Gotcha. So in this book, he answers two questions. Do you want to guess what those questions are? <laughs> How do you read and yes. why? <laughs> Thank yeah. you. How do you replace your oil? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you missed oh, it. I got to do that. Oh, a little so- light came on. Oh. That is in fact important. I once I, I had a car once that I did not change the oil on and it destroyed the engine. So well, it's like I put in the nice synthetic oil that says you can do this for ten thousand mm-hmm. miles, but my light goes on at five thousand miles just because that's how it's hardwired. So I'm like, oh, probably yeah. good. I feel like I can that's be okay. It. Yeah, I don't like that idea at all. I would follow your follow the lights. I, <laughs> I had a friend and I got a call at one point. And she's like, hey, I'm stranded on the pass. Can you help me with my car? I've, I'm in trouble. And I was like, all right, what's going on? She's like, it's like steaming and smoking and under the hood and stuff. And the, and I was like, what does the temperature gauge say? She's like, temperature gauge? And I was like, <laughs> this is good. Oh, good golly. Uh, so, so I described it. She's like, oh, it's, you know, it, it was parked at this point. And I was like, all right, can you find the coolant? And she's like, what's coolant? And so I pointed, it was just bone dry. And I was like, well, that's a brick. That's You've a created a brick. Right. That's exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's what happened to mine. It was unfortunate. Uh, so don't do that. Okay, so um, How to Read and Why is separated by a different genre of literature. Uh, he opens with a preface, though, that is helpful to understand the, the project he's working on here. So the title of it is Why Read? Uh, and conveniently, he will answer that question as a part of this. Okay, uh, I guess closer to what he actually is answering is how to, it's more the how to read question. So he has a few principles related to how to read. I guess I will go through these. Um, and maybe we'll comment, we'll riff on these as we go and see if they're helpful. Um, I imagine you all will laugh at him as we go. Um, he, it is, it's all we do. Actually, that kind of relates to his first principle. So this is in his, uh, preface of how to read and why I come then to the first principle. If we are to remove, or I'm sorry, what, if we are to restore the way we read now, a principle I appropriate from Dr. Johnson, clear your mind of Kant. Your C-A-N-T. Is that oh, I thought you Kant? meant like a manual. No, no. <laughs> so that also might be helpful advice. Um, 
Your dictionary will tell you that cant in this sense is speech overflowing with pious platitudes, the peculiar vocabulary of a sect or coven. Um, um, he'll go on to critique. Uh, I guess I'll just read it because we referenced it before. Uh, since the universities have empowered such covens as gender and sexuality and multiculturalism, Johnson's admonition thus becomes clear your mind of academic Kant, <laughs> uh, a university culture where the uh, appreciation of Victoria, uh, he makes a quip and I'm not going to read it. Um, but that's his first point is that you have to clear your mind of pious platitudes mm-hmm. of peculiar vocabulary of a sect or coven. Basically you can't go in with an ideology. Yeah. He, I, I can't remember what book he talked about it in, but he had, he coined this phrase or talked about hermeneutics of contempt Yeah, where, um, uh, hermeneutics, how you read and contempt going into it already having a, a set way of, so when you talk about, Oh, I'm doing a, I'm doing a, uh, a, a Marxist collectivist yes. reading of Shakespeare. It's yep. like, well, you what's the point? Don't do that. Right. Because Shakespeare doesn't matter at that point. Yeah. Like, you're going to find what you went in to look for. Yes. I had a friend in college and she was doing her, her master's, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, she said that that was the easiest way to write papers. Yes, was sure. Take, take a work and run it through an ideology yep. and there's your paper. It's mm-hmm. the yep. easiest thing in the world. Yeah. And, 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 that, and it's that, become an industry. And it feels yep. like an abuse of the work, right? The, yep. the work isn't there to talk about that and you can come i guess you can come at that perspective but that's not what it's for right i agree with that same and so that was kind of what we were joking about with um psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. like oh well then everything any unanswered question can just be repression yep well then if you have a if you've got this hermeneutic or if you if you've got this sort of program to run any work through at the end of it you're going to get to the conclusion that you wanted and people will sort of call you learned yep um and this is kind of what um, um, Bogosian and what's oh shoot, you got there me. Those, there are these three academics and they've been writing fake papers. Oh oh oh, sure, yeah. Um, we don't maybe we can talk about <laughs> it later, but they've been writing fake papers and getting them published in journal academic journals, especially sociology journals and journals about uh, anything that has studies at the end of it. So like. Was it Sokol? Um, was Sokol the first one? Yes, I think, yeah, Sokol, yeah, the Sokol paper. So anything with studies at the end, like like gender studies, queer yep. studies, fat studies, these sorts of journals. But they've been, they sort of cracked this code of, oh, if we put things in an ideological language and run it through this language prism, um, we can get these things. And they're actually getting published in peer-reviewed journals. Right. And then they actually came out and said, we, we have not been doing the research we've been, we've been saying we've been doing. We've just been running it through these fashionable language matrices. And we have 19 academic papers published. And it's oh, been this huge yep. scandal. <laughs> and uh, it's fascinating. I, um, listener, if this is interesting to you, pretty sure one of the, the, the guys' name is Bogosian, um, who's been doing this. But the Sokal paper, S-O-K-A-L, is that how you spell it? S-O-K-A-L. What, yeah. Yes. So anyway, Google it. There's, I think they're making a documentary about it. It's absolutely fascinating and just um, terrifying for the state of higher education yep. and and um, standards, yep. for sure. Anyway, sorry, Thomas. No, no that's good. No, that's helpful. So, but I think the, the point is important. So to bring in an ideology already assumed going into the work, it, it's almost a waste of time to read the work mm-hmm. if you're not open to what, what it has to say. Uh, Bloom will go on to say, uh, clear your mind of Kant leads on to the second principle of restoring reading. Do not attempt to improve your neighbor or your neighborhood by what you read. Self-improvement is a large enough project for your mind and spirit. There are uh, no ethics of reading. So the, again, in approaching this work, it's not, 
Um, how can I prove something outside of myself? How can I fix some world around me? But the project is for yourself. The project is to change your mind, to change how you think. Um, I think it's helpful. I, I don't know if you talk about this with your students, but how often do you have that expectation going to a work of this will change me if I actually like ingest this, if I actually like really reflect on this? I don't, I don't say it near often enough. Yeah. Cause that's what will happen. That's, um, who wrote, um, the, um, he wrote the Benedict option also, Roger uh, wrote a book called how Dante can save your life. Yeah. And it's, it's a beautiful book, but to think that, man, AJ, you get to walk kids through that. A book that could in fact change their life could, could save their lives if they were receptive to it. Um, that's what these works really are. There's a, a phrase from, I think it's Plutarch when he's talking about Anthony the great that I kind of want to commission one of our students that like calligraphy to do for me. And I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember the actual way that it's phrased or translated. But when he's talking about Alexander the Great, the the phrase is something, um, uh, he considered ruling himself better than conquering the world or something like that. Like ruling himself was was a bigger prize than conquering nations, something like that. And I think that's, that's sort of what Bloom's getting at. And I think that's kind of the, um, um, that is the healthy headspace to go into a work saying, yes. how can this reform me yeah. as opposed to someone? How else. can I churn this? Yes. How, how can I reform the work? Yeah. Which would be these hermeneutics of contempt sure. or um, how can I use this to reform AJ? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm coming for you. Buddy. Just let me know, man. I can probably use <laughs> you it. You could use yeah. it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Not true. You're great, AJ. Okay. My outfit would say differently. <laughs> we haven't made any comments, so I'm proud of us. Okay, so the call, I'm calling you El Deuterino if I'm not into that whole brevity thing. That's what <laughs> that's really funny because this is actually left over from that costume last night. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's, that's what I was dressed up as. Really <laughs> All right, let me move on to then the third principle. A scholar is a candle which the love and desire of all men will light. Whoa, that's his third principle. A scholar is a candle which the love and desire of all men will light. Um, you need not fear that the freedom of your development as a reader is selfish because if you become an authentic reader, then the response to your labels to your labors will confirm you as an illumination to others. And that's something. So yep, I can testify to that, that yeah, I mean, as a teacher, especially <laughs> right. That, Oh, oh were, were you I was say? being facetious, oh. but I mean, I, I think it's true. There's something, there's something true to that, yeah. that, um, that you being transformed and changed by it is what allows your sophomores or AJ, your freshmen to also, or your seniors, sorry, you teach that mm-hmm. class also like to experience that as well. And this is why authentic teaching is. Same what does Gibbs talk about at the cruciform lectern? Well, cruciform lectern. Yeah. Um, authentic teaching is really talking about how the book is convicting. Yes. To you now, yeah. not 20 years ago when you read it, but now yeah. it still does that. Yeah. Um, uh, his fourth principle then is one must be an inventor to read well. One must be an inventor to read well. Creative writing in Emerson's sense, I once named as misreading, a word that persuaded opponents that I suffered from voluntary dyslexia. The ruin or blank that they see when they look at a poem is in their own eye. (laughs) Self-trust is not an endowment, but is the second birth of the mind, which cannot come without years of deep reading. Um, so that invention is almost on, is then on oneself, um, uh, to read well. So, um, the, uh, I suggest that the recovery of the ironic might be our fifth principle for the restoration of reading. Maybe you all will like this one most. Um, think of the endless irony of Hamlet, whom, when he says one thing almost invariably means another frequently, indeed the opposite of what he says. 
But with this principle, I am close to despair, since you can no more teach someone to be ironic than you can instruct them to become solitary. (laughs) And yet the loss of irony is the death of reading and of what had been civilized in our natures. So the ability to not only read, I don't don't know if you have this experience of assigning a work and uh, I, I keep referencing students, I guess we do this also, to read the words on a page and totally miss the point of those words on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, that, again, he, he already said this, but it's sometimes what is being said is literally the opposite of, or what is meant is the opposite of what's being said. Yeah, irony is great. Yes. Sarcasm. Ah, Our different. kids are pretty good at sarcasm. They don't need to learn. <laughs> they already have that one. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, so that those are his five principles for how to read. Um, and then that leads him then into each individual section um, where he talks about then how to read uh, short stories, how to read novels, poems. Um, we won't have time to go into these. Um, I guess I will just... Um, I'll wrap up hopefully with uh, this. I find this humorous. Um, uh, Harold Bloom is often and rightfully accused of being pretentious. And I, he has some lines that just so much go over that line that I can't help but read some of them. So this is from the end of his, I think it's a section on short stories. Um, it is not always easy to distinguish the Chekhovian Hemingway-esque mode from the Kafka Borgesian because neither style of narration is nece- necessarily interested in telling you a story as Tolstoy so thoroughly and completely tell you of the life and death of Haji Murad, the Chechen hero in the short novel named after him. That's a sentence. I mean, yowzers. <laughs> I mean, Hanenberg and I have talked about how hard it is to differentiate between those two styles uh, daily. Like, what in the I world? I can't believe he filters it through Tolstoy. <laughs> that, exactly. What, an, what a rube. <laughs> I conclude this epilogue to the how and why of reading the short story by offering the double judgment that the Chekhovian, Hemingway-esque, and Borgesian models need never be preferred one to the other. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so What is this? So why, why even talk about it? <laughs> why even why bring it? it yeah, exactly. Why even, why even <laughs> just, these two modes to but, show to show uh, off right? one. It, yeah, it doesn't yeah, matter they're, yeah. they're both fine why 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 <laughs> that's a that's part of what is humorous is that again his audience he will tell you or what i'm sorry what whatever in in listening to interviews he would say his audience is the common man it's the every man it's, it's really yeah <laughs> It's interesting. It, these are uh, as understood by someone who's been 50 years at Yale. Thank you. Yeah. A, I mean, that's almost <laughs> the point of it. Um, but there, uh, and we, we've covered this in talking about Elliot before, um, but there is something in reading bloom that makes me want to read more and to read better mm-hmm. that, yeah. it, that to read him and see, Oh, this is possible to wrap your minds around these ideas, but not only these ideas, but to be shaped in a way where you love again, not only the works, but almost the authors themselves. Um, is beautiful. It's beautiful to read that. And he gets goofy and he'll go um, too far in expressing that affection. Um, but I don't know, in a weird way, he, it's very sweet, especially coming from such a curmudgeonly man. Um, so I, yeah. Um, what's all that to say? Um, read Harold Bloom. Uh, I found the, the Western canon is uh, again, a thousand pages or, or somewhere around there. So as a reference, it's very helpful. I would not recommend cover to cover reading of that, but how to read and why is um, meant to be just a pick it up, read it book. It's only about 300 pages um, and gives you a very helpful overview of the Western canon. So that, my friends, is Harold Bloom. Cool. Nice. 
No, he's probably turning in his grave at you mocking that sentence. <laughs> sorry about that, but uh, it deserved it. What's the other way to yeah. say that? Yeah, sorry, I don't know. It's probably right. I read another academic paper. Uh, it was. It's actually from uh, Paradise Lost. Uh-huh. I was trying to figure out why Medusa was uh-huh. in hell because uh-huh. everything else is Christian mm-hmm. lore, and then it's the one section where it's out of nowhere. Medusa's just out of nowhere. Yeah. It's like it's it's pagan. And yeah. I was like, it's Greek. I was like, what is happening? And so I read this paper, and it bloviated on. Mm-hmm. Latin shadow gardens and <laughs> okay. and all this crazy stuff, and at the end it was like all that to say oh, we don't we don't really know. <laughs> Good, and I was wonderful. like, why did I just read <laughs> sixteen point? pages yeah, of that? Totally. It was language like that like too. That, yeah. Sixteen pages yeah. of language like that, and then at the end it's like, yeah, we don't really know. So yeah, I, uh, I don't want to pretend that Bloom doesn't have lots of sentences like that, but I think it's uh, enough. Of, it, it's easy to overlook those. And also, I'm almost being unfair to him because he kind of builds up to that sentence at the very... It's the end of a section. Right. So you kind of understand what those modes are and what they're doing. Because you've, you've read about... He's he's described yeah. other short stories on this axis and then ends that way. But just like to read that as, is just like, what are, what are you talking about? So I promise, I promise he's easier to read than that sentence would indicate. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know with your three friendly Texans mm. or current Texans. Wow. <laughs> this is awkward. No, is that weird? Is, would you consider yourself a Texan now? I mean, this is something like the uh, space and time and identity and yeah. <laughs> you want to talk about? We, so are are you going to do a bloom sentence right now? We have, oh, we, 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 we have four minutes left. Yeah, so yeah, if you want to like, like, concoct one now, yeah, you spend good. 27 years in Canada and uh-huh. then you spend seven in Texas. Uh-huh. When does, yeah, when do you switch over? Three and a half. <laughs> a three and a half? Yeah, three and a half. That's the number. So Well, I think it's probably two. It's when your body acclimates. To the heat? Yeah. Oh, okay. So never. Isn't that... Um, no, I, I, I can. I used to not be able to go outside at oh, 100 degrees, really? and now it's like 99, and I'm like, ooh, this is brisk. <laughs> yeah, like it's got a chill in the air. So does that mean that I'm a foreigner when I go back to Canada? Mm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Sorry, buddy. It's so hard to. Or you have in. two homes. Wouldn't that be the other option? Yeah, I know. You're gonna wear a coat like a wuss <laughs> when it's like 60 degrees outside, and everyone else is in flip flops and shorts. Yeah, sure. I had this weird feeling. We were walking with some students down one of the paths towards the football field, and we were putting it. We were putting in this gravel on the path and when, as the kids were walking on it it was making a crunch sound and for a second i thought it was the crunch of snow like oh. it was like it was a, a feeling of like nostalgia and displacement and then i had that like oh yeah no i'm in texas for some reason and then uh, anyway it was just a very weird thought mm. i don't know yeah. Thanks. That was a fun digression. (laughs) Seriously, yeah. (laughs) You can reach us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can check out our website at classicalstuff.net. And you can tweet us at C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff on the twits. Yeah, if there's like melancholy tweets about like time passing Mm, in home, you'll know why. Yeah, Yeah. that's good. (laughs) It's just going to be a really sad week for everybody. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we hope you've enjoyed the podcast. We definitely enjoyed doing it. If you liked it, you can go ahead and leave a review if you're into it. That's always helpful for us. If you don't like it, go ahead and not just leave a review. Just, don't just don't like, pretend uh, we didn't say anything. Move yeah. on along down yeah. the road. Or You'll find yourself a different podcast. Go leave a bad review on about another. us on another podcast yeah. and tell us about it so that we can read it. And we can grow. <laughs> and we can yeah. grow, but we can keep that 4.8. <laughs> yep, <laughs> <Good> that's <laughs> important to us. Anyway, good. thanks a bunch. This is the boys signing off. Bye.